0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in the middle of chapter 17. Let me just recap briefly what we talked about last week with the concept of Babylon. I first went through a few theories of how people identify this woman in the book of Revelation who is called Babylon the Great. If you remember, we talked about the common view from the Reformers that the Babylon is the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, the Pope was the Antichrist, and this was a very common view for much of history. I believe it doesn't meet all the requirements of the text. We shared another view that Babylon the Great is simply a religious system, a coming-together of all religions, like a one-world religion, that will come to the fore of history in the end times, and there's probably some truth to that. Some people said it was Jerusalem. I don't, believe, don't think that was right. And we went through all of these. I gave you some of their arguments and, and told you why. Really, I believe they all have a bit of truth, but they don't meet everything that we need. A few things that we said Babylon should remind us of is that it was all those years ago in the same location, Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, basically, where organised religion and rebellion against God first began with what we call the Tower of Babel. So this should remind us that Babylon should remind us of idolatry and false religion in many ways. We also talked about the destruction of Babylon as it was prophesied in the Bible. Four chapters, Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18, all deal with the destruction of Babylon. And we read some of their descriptions, and then we looked at the historical fall of the Babylonian Empire under the days of Nebuchadnezzar and we noticed that the fall of Babylon does not seem to fit the destruction of Babylon. Remember I told you the story how the Persian army diverted the river and they snuck in under the gates and they took the city without a fight really whereas the text of the destruction of Babylon seemed to imply that it will be utterly devastated, never to be inhabited again. So that doesn't fit. So this is why I argued that we need a future destruction of Babylon, which is exactly why I believe we have Babylon again, mentioned in Revelation 17 and 18. It will be a centre for the coming world leaders, government, religion, economic center, whatever you want to call it. We see all of these things coming out of this area in the last days. Now as a reminder, what we've seen during this book in the book of Revelation is this coming world leader, this politician who's going to have all the answers to mankind's problems, who is actually going to be Satan's man of the moment, popularly known as the Antichrist. Again, I don't like that word because people usually associate that with someone wandering around with 666 written on them in a very dark trench coat looking very mysteriously evil. That is not the picture we get of this man. This man is going to be a wonderful politician. He unites empires and nations. He's going to control military, economics. He's going to be a great speaker. But it also says that with his power and his fame he will speak blasphemous things against the God of Heaven and at a certain point Satan will actually use this person to take over the world and demand worship himself. His whole point is that Satan is trying to do what he always wanted to do and take the place of God, receive the worship for himself, and you can actually look at world history and see that is really what is going on behind the scenes in many places. Last week we got introduced to this woman. Of course, the woman is symbolic language, the way the book of Revelation is, but it's referring to a literal city called Babylon the Great, the great city. That is what we have. So we're going to pick it up in verse 7, and then we'll just read 7 and 8. So it says, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was, and is not, and will come. So if you remember, the beast we talked about is one of these other names for this coming political world ruler, the Antichrist. We've already spoken about him many times in Revelation. And remember, we must view all of this as Satan's counterfeit. Remember we talked about it. In Christianity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What we've seen in Revelation is Satan, the dragon, the beast, the counterfeit, and the false prophet, as the counterfeit Holy Spirit, the unholy trinity as we could call it. All of these things, that's what Satan does. He's the master of lies, of deception and of counterfeit and that is what he's trying to do here. Remember, we spoke about the beast. He had a mortal wound and it appeared to the world that he was dead and then he rose again and killed those two witnesses in Jerusalem. And that is really what propelled him onto center stage and it said that when he does that, the whole world wondered after the beast and they started to worship. This is what I believe is being referred to in this text. It says, the beast you saw was, is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss. This is basically the life cycle of the beast. He was, that's when he rose to power, his political rise to power. Do you remember from Daniel 7, he's the one who will make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel for seven years during this final period. He will break that treaty at some point. It says he is not, that's referring to the the topics I just mentioned, where he seems to in a battle of some sort, receive a mortal wound and come back to life. It then says he will ascend, and then ultimately he gives you his fate. He will go to destruction. His destruction will come at the hands of Jesus Christ at the second coming. This is his life cycle, basically. And it again highlights that those who dwell on earth, those who are his, those who have taken his mark, those cannot be saved at this point. And only at this final period of history do we ever see a time when people cannot be saved, I believe, and it's those who take the mark of the beast. Really, from the moment that he was resurrected, that the church began all those 2,000 years ago, every day has been a day where the Lord, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. God is long-suffering, abundant in mercy and loving kindness, and he desires all those to come to him and be saved. And that is really why he has allowed it to go on for so long but this period of history now is the close. That time has come to an end and he is dealing with these people who ruin and corrupt and destroy the earth and he is removing them so that he can start his kingdom glorious anew with him at the head, basically. That is what we have here. It says that when the beast does these things, the world wonders after him and that is where we have it. Let's look at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads, follow me with this, are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is. The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. You see, this is why I say that Revelation, do you remember, is basically the outworking of the entire rest of the Bible. That's why it quotes the Old Testament so much. So to understand a lot of these figures that can seem a little confusing to us, heads and mountains and horns, all of these come from different prophecies in the Bible most of them from the book of the prophet Daniel. And I'll try and draw some of that out. We've dealt with that in in a few of the previous other studies, so I'll try and summarize it. So we have this command, the mind which has wisdom. So the author here is telling you this is something that you need to really think about. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom comes from studying the word of God at this point. He's basically saying this is going to be quite complex, but it's also going to be amazing. Make sure you have a mind that seeks wisdom when you study this. The angel now is going to explain to John, the apostle, the author of this book, the relationship between this beast and this woman that is sitting on the beast, so between the Antichrist and Babylon, the city and the religious system. Seven heads are seven mountains and they are seven kings too. They are all of these things and these are all references to different prophecies. Now interestingly, remember I said some people identify the Rome as Babylon This is where they get that from. Historically, one of the names for Rome was Rome is the city that sits on seven hills. That was a geographic description of Rome, and that was known all all over the world at that time. However... I still don't think that's right because technically the Greek doesn't say hills, it does say mountains, they are different words there, it's not the same thing. And I don't see why you would have a call for special wisdom if that was the identification because everyone at that time knew Rome was the city on seven hills. It just doesn't quite fit, doesn't fill all the details in, another reason, that's an aside. More likely, this is drawing on the biblical and Jewish metaphors that are used in the Bible when it speaks of Mountains. Mountains are often used as a symbol of a king and a kingdom, like a great mountain would be a great kingdom, particularly in Jeremiah 51, which is the passage that speaks of Babylon. You have it, Jeremiah writes this towards ancient Babylon. He says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch my hand against you, roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt out mountain. So he's referring to the empire of Babylon there as a mountain, as is often the case. Do you remember the very famous prophecy in Daniel chapter 2? Where, if you don't know, just let me fill you in. In Daniel chapter 2, which was a prophecy given about 500 BC, before the time of Christ, during the days of Babylon, you have an amazing prophecy where Daniel is given the succession of historical empires that will fill that area of the world. And he takes us through these empires from Babylon to Medo-Persia and onwards to Greece and then to Rome. And these are the prophecies. It's an amazing prophecy written hundreds of years in advance. But in that, he says, Daniel 2, verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed. Those metals are what he uses to speak of the different empires. That's explained elsewhere. He says they will be crushed and they become like chaff, like the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And if I read on, I won't for the sake of time, it'll tell you that that great mountain that destroys all these other empires is Christ's kingdom. So the picture is you have this succession of empires all the way from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome, and then there's a sort of final phase of that Roman empire that we're reading about in Revelation, and then eventually the big stone, Christ's kingdom, will come, destroy all of those and fill the whole earth. So here I'm just showing you this because you have again this picture of mountains being used of kingdoms and I think that is what we are really getting at in the book of Revelation here. So you have these seven mountains and it also says that they are seven kings. Usually king kingdoms are headed up by a king of some sort or a, a ruler of some sort. This is referring to the mountains, to the same things. Now, just as a technical aside, in my Bible, you'll notice it says, and they are seven kings. If you're reading a King James, it'll say, there are also seven kings. There's a slight discrepancy with the translation there. Again, it's not actually anything to do with the underlying text of the Greek. It's because the... Pronunciation is difficult to translate. They didn't have things like commas and full stops in the Greek text. So translators make their best guess, and they got it wrong there, because in the King James, it does make it sound like it's talking about seven different kings, like a different entity. So there's the mountains and the kings. Where it's not, it's saying they are also kings. It's talking about the same set of people, so don't let that fool you. It says, five have fallen, one is. The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. So there are five major kingdoms that have fallen since John's day. John wrote the book of Revelation, John wrote in the 1st century AD. So from his day there have already been five of these kingdoms that have fallen. Now if you go back through history, of course there are many empires that have risen and fallen through history, but we're referring to the specific empires that actually have an interaction with God's people Israel at this time. The Bible very much places the Middle East God's kingdom of Israel and his purposes at the center of world history and everything really flows from that and it's no surprise that we get these prophecies of empires related in the same way so we must keep it in the context of Middle Eastern history that is the scope of biblical prophecy now most people understand these five empires to be the ones that Daniel is talking about so if you count backwards from John's day he started in Rome before Rome you go back to Greece then you had the Medo-Persian empire and then you had the Babylon empire That's that's what Daniel says. And then there are two more to make the five. If you go back before that, you have the Assyrian Empire, talked about a lot in the Bible. Before that, you have the Egyptian Empire, which was obviously hugely involved in the nation of Israel. They had Israel as slaves for 400 years, and the nation was born, actually, as they came out of Egypt. So you get all of those empires exactly in the right order as they have appeared on this earth. They are the five that have come already. And then John says one is. In John's day, that would have been Rome. Rome was ruling the world, the known world anyway at that time, the Roman Empire, and Rome is also the the empire that Daniel prophesies about. He then says, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. So this is telling us that there is the Roman Empire, and then at some point, there will be another empire. Scholars often refer to this as the revived Roman Empire, This is why many people make a big thing when they see these moves for the unification of Europe and the territories that were once ruled by Rome coming together, forming these new nations. Now again, I think that may just be precursors. I don't think that's the final thing here. You must remember, of course, that the Roman Empire was not just the Western world. The Roman Empire also had quite a big territory in the Eastern world too. So there's no way to limit it to the Western world. It could be all of these things coming together at this time. But whatever it may be, we do know that there will be a global government-type empire coming together that will be this final one that is coming, and from this final empire, you will see this person called the Beast rise out of it, and he will become the top dog politically at this time. Everyone still with me here? Like, you can see what I say, there's a lot of background that needs to go into this, but hopefully you can, if this is your introduction to it, it'll whet your appetite to study it more. It is an amazing history that we have here. So what it's basically saying One must remain a little while. We know that this final world empire that will be headed up by this world ruler is Satan's final attempt to take over this earth and have his kingdom. The Lord allows it for a very short period to really show the earth, make everyone make their choice of who they're going to follow. It says in Revelation 13 that we studied a while back, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. So he gets three and a half years. And you remember why I said he gets three and a half years? How long was Jesus on the earth for ministering? His public ministry lasted three and a half years. You see, Satan here is making his challenge that he can rule the earth and have his kingdom. And God is obviously sitting in the heavens really laughing at this, but he allows him three and a half years. That is all that Satan and his kingdom gets. And then it says the the stone will come and smash Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom will be set up forever. Verse 11, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. Stay with me here. I I won't go into huge amounts of detail with all these numbers, but it's basically saying you get these seven kingdoms, the Antichrist will arise from the final form of this kingdom. So he is of the seven But when he takes over, he's kind of like an eighth too, if you see what I mean. So like he comes from it, but in one sense he starts something new. So he is a seventh and also an eighth. That is what I believe is the idea here. And the beast will arise from them. It says he goes to destruction. And this is important. Because if we've been reading Revelation, we're giving quite a lot of time to how this man will take over control of the world, how he will persecute people who name the name of Christ, and how much of the world will be destroyed. But just in case anyone thinks at any point that this man has power within himself, that God is not allowed, it says he goes to destruction. His end is already set. This man's time at the top will end quickly, it will end suddenly, and it will end forever. That is the whole point. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. This is referring, if you know the prophecies of Daniel, to those ten horns that he saw in the beast or the ten toes on the statue vision, speaking of the end times empire that will consist of ten global governments coming together. It says they have not received a kingdom. This is... It's still in the future, we haven't reached this yet in our day. This is what Revelation is dealing with. Daniel 7 As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones. He will subdue three kings, he will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the highest one. What this is basically saying is, as this global government seems to come together, that rules all parts of the world, and and this is not something that's hard to imagine. Many national movements today try and separate the world into different divisions and speak about who has control. Empires have always done that. But it seems, just as they're getting to this point where these ten leaders have world control, this one person called the Antichrist, this coming world ruler, will rise up above them and actually take control for himself and he will be the undisputed ruler of the world at that point on this earth anyway. But he will only be doing that for a short period. He will be in charge of the ten, thus he has global control at this point, which is why when we read a few weeks back, He is able to control the economic system. It says no one will be able to buy or sell without this man's permission, without the mark. And we talked a little bit about the way the world is very nearly set up to actually have these things implemented now. Whether that's what we're talking about, I'm not dogmatic about it. We have to really just study and use our best wisdom as we can do that. But again, I just remind you, for me, the point is here, this is a counterfeit kingdom that is being set up. Just as the Bible teaches that Christ will rule in his kingdom and he will have his faithful people around the world ruling, the idea here is that Satan wants to be in charge and he has his servants basically ruling this earth. Satan is trying to copy what God has put in place. Verse 13, he says, These have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. This is the reason for what we have here. Their purpose, this government, this global system of government, is ultimately the catalyst for this world leader to take over and ultimately proclaim himself as God and he'll demand at a certain point in history that everyone worship him and if you don't worship him that is when you will be restricted from social services and from economics from buying and selling that's the way it seems to be and just again this is not new Remember, I shared with you many examples. The Roman government used to do this all the time. Unless you bow down and burn a bit of incense to Caesar proclaiming him as Lord, you were not allowed to join the trade guilds. You're not allowed to enter and use some of their services. It's exactly the same thing going on. There are certain places in the world where this still happens today unless you bow down to the statue of the dictator. If you name the name of Christ in some countries today, you'll still suffer the same consequences. This is not something unusual is what I'm saying. This is something that Satan has always tried to implement on this earth. It stands against Christ. That's the whole point. But at this period in history, he doesn't have any opposition. There are no righteous nations. There's no church on earth at this point. There's no one restricting him. He has free reign, and that is why he is able to accomplish what he can. But the Lord says you only get three and a half years to try, and then I'm coming basically, I've had enough and that is what we see going on here. Let's look at verse 14. These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. Now this is a wonderful verse here. You see, we've had these scenes of this Babylon, this kingdom of Babylon that is acting immoral with the kings of the earth, causing destruction, killing people, doing all these things, ruling over the empires of the earth. And now we have this little verse here. Just in case anyone is mistaken about who the real power is, about whose universe this is, about who is really in charge, you have verse 14 put in. They will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now when it says wage war, This is referring back to what we spoke of in chapter 16, called popularly the final battle of history, the battle of Armageddon. But that basically, Revelation 16 says, the kings of the whole world will gather together for war of the great day of God Almighty. Now let's understand what what is happening here. They're waging war against the Lamb. The Lamb is another term for Jesus Christ. Those who follow the beast at this time, That is someone who has made a positive decision that they do not follow the name of jesus christ at this time they want to follow this world ruler this man who has all the answers and solutions but by doing that they also have to admit that they're going to worship him as god they raise him to that status and through that they're actually worshipping the one behind him who is satan there is no doubt they despise the lamb and they despise his people but in the bigger context of revelation understand we're seeing the end this we're so close to the end here in chapter 5 if you can cast your minds back we saw that scene in heaven of the sealed scroll of revelation which was in fact the title deed of the earth in the ancient rome they used to have title deeds like that with seals on them and only someone with the right authority could break the break the seals and you had this scene where people were weeping in heaven because there was no one worthy to open the scroll and then the Lamb of God steps forward and it says stop weeping, the Lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll and the whole point being that only Jesus Christ was the rightful owner of the earth it was given to him originally and only he can take back the title deed the whole picture of history is that the earth was god's he gave it to mankind mankind decided to rebel against god and thus we handed it over to satan and you see his hand throughout history ever since what we're having here now is that time where god has finally said to his son i've had enough it's time to go back and take back your kingdom and your earth this is the scroll this is your right and he's coming back to do that that is exactly what revelation is Only the lamb is found worthy to open it. Only Jesus Christ is the rightful inheritor of the earth, and he is going to redeem it back from those who are squatting on his earth, if you could say it like that, or people who are usurping his place on this earth. Like I said, he's allowed it because at this time, the gospel is saving people every single day. People are leaving Satan's kingdom into his kingdom every single day, but there must be a point. The way he will do that is he will send his, God the Father sends his son, It says that he will install his king upon Zion, which is Jerusalem, the throne of David. So when the rightful owner comes back, you can imagine this, and it's kind of like a title deed and a landlord, someone squatting in your property. Imagine the time if there weren't all these laws today. The rightful owner comes back, and he's got all the power, all the authority, and all the right, and he wants his property back. This is what basically we see here happening in the book of Revelation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it, and his son has earned the right to redeem it back for mankind because he became a man and died for us. That's the whole point of the incarnation in many ways. All these people who are following the beast at this time, they want to stop that happening. They don't want the landlord coming back, if I could say it like that. So they take up arms against him. That's the whole point of Armageddon. They want Armageddon. They want to stop the rightful king taking back his throne. In Revelation chapter 19, that gets detailed in a lot more depth. We'll have a look at that as we get there. But it says the lamb will overcome them. You see, there's no question, there's no wait to see who's winning. The lamb overcomes them simply just an affirmation of victory that we have here not even a shadow of doubt in the revelation here of what will transpire the lamb triumphs and why because of the very next verse it even says because he is lord of lords and king of kings now these are not just grand claims titles to try and elevate the man these have a specific and biblical context particularly in the ancient near east and they make some very dramatic points the lamb can overcome anyone because he is Lord of Lords. The lamb being Jesus Christ and Lord of Lords being a title for deity. This is a definite statement that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. You cannot get a clearer statement than yes. This. this is not some rival religious figure. This is not some tribal deity. This is not some warlord. This is not some chieftain or king that they are fighting. They are in fact taking up arms against the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who is sitting up there saying, every breath you allow is by my grace, and yet you're still down there taking up arms against me. This is the sort of thing that is going on here. The term Lord of Lords comes from the book of Deuteronomy, where we first see it used. Deuteronomy 10, verse seven. It says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. It speaks of God as the Almighty. Ascribing this title to Jesus Christ is no small thing, except if it's true, which it is. That's why it can be done. It is also a statement that means all of those who are following the beast and those who are worshipping the beast, they have no hope of victory. They just have no hope. Nothing can stand against the Lord of Lords. It also says he is the King of Kings and this was a title employed by various kings of ancient empires in the Middle East. This, this has a real purpose to it. The idea was to show that you are the supreme sovereign on the block, so particularly like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He referred to himself as the king of kings because he was the top empire. If you've ever seen the film 300, dealing with the Persian rulers Xerxes, we have many inscriptions, Xerxes often liked to call himself the king of all kings. And the idea was it shows you that although there's some other empires around in the area and they have their own kings, I'm the king of all kings. That's the point of this title. So it's no wonder now that as we see Jesus Christ coming back to actually take over and destroy an empire of a revived Babylon that often referred to themselves as the king of kings, you see him given his true title. He is basically saying, nope, (laughs) I am the king of kings the king of all kings, I am the top king, there is no one else who even comes close. That's why Jesus has this title. And it says, as we will read in Revelation 19, he actually has that written on his thigh, on his robe, as he rides back to take his kingdom. He's coming back at his second coming, he is coming back as the only righteous king, the true king of all the earth, truly he will be the king of all kings. There is no higher king, nor can there ever be. Whether human or angel, all are inferior to this person here, the Lamb, the Lord of Lords, the King of all Kings. He is God Almighty, he is the creator, he is above all things, he is above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. There is nothing that can come close. He is the Lord of Lords. That is why he can come back and do what he does and set up his kingdom. And we should make sure, although we're reading about an event that will be in the future, we need to take this lesson to heart right now as a church, particularly because we follow the king of kings. Yes, we serve the lamb. He's also called the lamb because he's humble, he's meek, and he was led to the slaughter for us so that we never have to suffer these things that we're reading in this book here. He gave his life for us. He's the humblest of men, he is lowly of heart, and yes, he is the true servant king in many ways. He gave his life as a ransom for ours, he came not to be served, but to serve us. That is also why he has the moral right, he is a true king, he's the sort of king you want ruling over you. Yet let us never forget, whilst he is all that, He is also the Almighty, the awesome God of all creation, the one whose essence and being is utter, pure holiness, righteousness and truth, the one whose glory shines so bright that no human can look in it. It says he dwells in unapproachable light. Dare we challenge the decrees of such a king? Would we want to challenge the decrees of such a king? Yet I believe every time now that we disobey the word of God, we are doing exactly that when we decide that we do not like what the Bible says there, we're going to change that because the culture seems to have moved on, or whatever argument you might want to be, you are saying to this God, this King, this Creator, you got that wrong, I'm afraid, I am much smarter than you are. And we do that all the time, don't we? Culture does that. And we know behind that, obviously, that is Satan doing what he does. He wants the Kingdom for himself. He wants people to follow his ways, not God's ways. This is why you see such an attack on the Bible. No book in history has ever been vilified like the Bible, yet it still remains the most popular book in the history of the world, and it always will. Yet, you can go to places in the world today, and the Bible is banned, the Bible is persecuted, you can get put in prison for even owning a Bible. Why? Because these people know when you start reading the Bible, you usually get saved, you meet the king of all kings, and then you're different. Satan loses a person from his kingdom, heaven gains a person. The whole history of the world, the Unseen War, we've called it as we go through Revelation. This is what is going on in history. Many examples I could give you of that across from across the world today. We need to understand this. Thankfully, he is the King of Kings. He's also abundant in mercy and loving kindness. In the 16th century, there was a man named Hugh Latimer, English reformer, Protestant reformer. He was a great preacher in England. He became famous because, as one of the Oxford martyrs. So he, he was killed in Oxford under Queen Mary. He was burnt at the stake for his beliefs in the King of Kings, basically, because he stood up for the Word of God. At this time in history, Queen Mary was a Roman Catholic. Roman Catholics, remember, are connected to this Babylonian system in some ways, and they did not like the preaching of the true King of Kings as above and over the Pope, and he was burnt at the stake for that. And if you actually go, I think there is a picture of it I've got on the screen, but if you go to Oxford today, you'll see a small little cross on the middle of Broad Street. This is to commemorate the place where Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burnt at the stake. You'd walk over it, you you can watch people walk over it, don't have a clue what it is, but that is what it is for, and it is still there today, you can see that today. Now, there's a wonderful story of this man a few years before his fateful end. He was a very popular preacher, and on one occasion he was preaching, and King Henry VIII, and you know, King Henry VIII ruled before Queen Mary, who was his daughter, and he was kind of favorable to Protestant ideas. He allowed much preaching in that area for his own purposes, but the Lord used it nonetheless. And as Timur was stepping up to the pulpit, one of the king's attendants came to him and said, Latimer, Latimer, do remember that you're speaking in front of the mighty King Henry today. He has the power to command you, to put you in prison, to take your head if it will, so please say nothing that would offend his royal ears. Could you imagine having someone just nod you and say that, they're kind of like, come here, like, that's pressure as you walk into the pulpit, and it's, the story goes on that Latimer paused, composed himself, and then he was heard repeating these words to himself by his, by his people who were with him, and he said, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the king of kings and lord of lords, before him at whose throne Henry the Eighth will one day stand before him, to whom one day you will have to give an account of yourself, Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master, declare, all of God's word as it is written. And he did, and he stood for truth, and ultimately it cost him his life. He was burnt at the stake for that. Queen Mary burnt him at the stake, the famous story that him, as him and Nicholas Ridley, were were tied to the stake, and the flames were starting to burn them. And he shouted to Master Ridley, who was another preacher, he said, play the man, Master Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And they did in many ways. The Reformation did change England for the better in many ways. Let's go back to Revelation, the end of that verse. And it says, And those who are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. So those who are with this King of kings and Lord of lords as he comes to destroy these people who are usurping his kingdom. He comes with his saints and the reference, I believe, being described as called and chosen, that is, speaking of Christian, that is believers, not angelic beings at this time, although they will be on the scene, and we know that at this time, so far, only the Church Age saints have received, have been resurrected to be with Christ. What this is basically saying, when Christ returns at his second coming, his spiritual body, the Church, that's why we're always referred to, the Church is his body, he is the head, we are the body, we come back with him at this time. And I like that, the way it took, think about this, when Latimer was, was marched into the central square of Oxford and he was tied to a stake and he was burnt for his belief in the King of Kings, he probably knew that scripture. One day he would ride with the Lord to come back in the glory of the King of Kings and set up his kingdom on this earth. He knew that and that is really what sustains these people bringing justice and righteousness to the earth, following after the king of kings. He knew that. He is Lord of lords and king of kings. Let's just finish up these last four verses. Verse 15, And he said to me, The waters which you saw where where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So again, remember we are speaking in symbolic language here. This woman referring to Babylon and all that flows from it rules over the peoples and nations of the earth. We can see that to a degree today. In this future time it will be very evident. Then we have an unusual turn of events. It's quite hard, I'm not gonna speculate really on what this is, we, we, we see the beast that she is riding upon turn and devour her. Almost like he has no more purpose or no use for her any longer. So what is this referring to? We don't really get much explanation. We just get this verse here. Most people assume that during the build-up to the rule of the Antichrist, like as the nations are coming together, as he's unifying religions and politics and economics, religion is a great tool for him to do that and he will use many different religious things. You've probably seen these different ecumenical religious bodies being built, like the Abraham Center in Dubai, that will have like a mosque, a synagogue, and a church all right next door to each other because they all worship the same God, apparently. These sorts of things are are useful. As Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the masses. You can get people to do what you want. False religion, obviously, I'm referring to here. I believe that the, the woman might use something like that. So what people speculate is that at a certain point the religious element of, the ba- of Babylon has been useful to get everyone to fall in line and follow his lead. But we know that the beast at a certain point will want people to worship him as God. You remember it says he, take, he goes to their place in Jerusalem and he puts up a statue of himself in the temple and he now says, now everyone bow down to me, I'm God. At that moment, he probably has no longer use for anything else that might challenge that. So he gets rid of all that and he is the sole Person that you can worship now. He wants to put himself as God on earth, and of course, that is how Satan envisages his kingdom. But of course, we know the end of that. He has 3.5, three and a half years to do that. That's maybe what is going on here. We can't say for definite. I just really don't know. So it's quite a hard thing to do. Now, we are only speculating, but we can know, if you look at verse 17, that God is in control and the words of God will be fulfilled. The words of God will be fulfilled. All these things that I'm referring to you, these prophecies that I keep mentioning, many of them have already been fulfilled. We've spoken about this many times. Most of them were fulfilled 2,000 years ago in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Prophecy usually speaks with reference to either his first coming or his second coming. You can go through history and you can see hundreds of them were fulfilled to the letter in his first coming, Therefore you have very good justification to believe that they will be fulfilled to the letter in his second coming, or else how does he get one to work and not the other, you can't. He is God, he is in charge of history, he has ordained it this way. Everything will be fulfilled, Babylon will meet its end, and many unfortunately will choose to side with Babylon in this coming time. Billy Graham the preacher once said, I've been preaching repentance for 70 years. There are thousands of ministers of the gospel all over this planet preaching repentance this very hour, and most of the time, the world has laughed in the face of the King of Kings. And that's true, isn't it? You ever preach the gospel to someone for them to, to mock you? They're not mocking you, they're mocking the King of Kings. What did they do when Christ was here on this earth? He spat in his face. And he allowed it, obviously, because he loves us. He wanted us to be saved. That's what he did for us. That is a true king. But... They laugh now sometimes, whereas we weep for a broken and lost world. But here, what we're reading about in future, things are reversed. Babylon is destroyed. The Lord is pictured in heaven, at la- laughing at man's attempt to take up arms against him. Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. And then he will speak in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, coming back to rule. So as we shall see next week, when Babylon is finally destroyed, it is their turn to weep. And they're weeping for the destruction of Babylon, but yet we also see it's heaven's turn to rejoice. And all those who have been killed and persecuted by these people over the years will be rejoicing in heaven because they know the kingdom is about to arrive. So the question for us now is to make sure that we are among the right number and that we acknowledge Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings in our life now. That is the only sure way to be saved and enter his kingdom. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.